In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Brothers, sisters, and dear respected viewers, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome to this news, newest uh, installment in our series on the important topic of the afterlife. Before we jump into today's discussion, let's rebuild a little bit on what we have said until now. Uh, as we've been explaining, there's a little bit of a logical sequence to what we have been presenting. So inshallah, we keep things clear and if they are not, don't hesitate to ask your questions or voice any concerns or comments that you may have. The topic that we wanted to discuss today is the topic of knowing the afterlife. How can we know about what awaits us after we die, after we leave this world? So to recap a little bit on what we have said until now, from the beginning, we have said that the topic of the afterlife, first of all, is an important topic for our belief system in general. A human being needs to know, needs to be able to understand for themselves when they look at the way in which they understand the world. Where do they come from? What are they doing in this world? And where are they going? These three questions, the answers to these three questions, they form, in today's contemporary way of saying things, they are your worldview. They are the way you interpret your place in the world. This is what is going to determine how you interact and how you behave in the world, how you make your choices, how you make your decisions in this world. Depending on where you think you come from, what you think you're supposed to be doing in this world, and where you think you're going after you die. So, at a theoretical level, your worldview is going to be incomplete, it's going to be missing something, if you do not answer the question of what happens after you die. So this is a more theoretical reason for giving importance to the topic of the afterlife. There's also a more practical reason, which is, if someone believes that there is something that happens after they die, they are not going to live in the same way as someone who thinks that all there is is this world and then we die and nothing. Someone who does not think that anything happens after you die, who lives what we call a materialist world, a world where there is only matter and where you only have this body, is going to live in a completely different way they're going to have very different reasons for doing what they do because they don't think that there's anything awaiting them after they die. So they may do anything that they feel like doing. They may live however they feel like living. So long as there are no repercussions, there are no consequences, no effects to their actions in this world. So I can get away with anything. I can do anything I want. So long as there are no repercussions, there are no consequences in this world. Someone who believes in an afterlife cannot live this way. Because whether or not there are consequences to my actions in this world, 
Whether or not there are outcomes to anything I do, I may do something and no one will ever find out. I can steal, I can cheat, I can do whatever I want. So long as no one ever finds out in this world, the person who doesn't believe that there's anything that happens after life is okay. But the person who does, the person who thinks there is something awaiting them after life, is not going to be able to do those things because they think that even though someone did not see them, even though there may not be repercussions to it in this world, there are still going to be repercussions where it really matters, and that's going to be after you die. So at a practical level, so beyond the theory, at a very practical level, at an applicable level, the manner in which we live our lives on a daily basis, we understand that belief in the afterlife is going to completely change the way you make your decisions and the way you make your choices and live your life. So this is a more practical. And then we talked about the soul. We said before we talk about anything related to the topic of the afterlife, we need to get out of the way one big question, which is, is the human being only this body or is there more than this body? And the short answer, we gave multiple lectures on this, I think three of them. The short answer is that we are not only this body. In fact, we are not this body at all. We are a soul. What we truly are, who we truly are is the soul. Our identity is the soul. And we have been given a body to go through this world. So if you understand this, you understand that a human being is made up of more than just this body, is made up of an entity that will continue to exist after this body dies, and that that entity is going to determine who you truly are and your worth, your value in this world, not your body. You're responsible for the body you've been given, but your body is on loan to you from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as you go through this world. You take care of it and you use it to do good. And as you leave this world, it's not this body that leaves this world. When the angels of death come to take back your life, they do not take back your body. Regardless of what happens to your body, what they're looking for is the real you, and the real you is not your body. It's the soul. And then when you are resurrected in the afterlife, as we showed, you will be given a body. But that's not who you truly are. You're going to need it in the afterlife. That's it. So this was the discussion about the importance of the topic and the discussion about the soul. Then we talked about, now that we know these points, how do we know that there's actually an afterlife? How can we prove that there's a resurrection? And we said, as usual, as we have been doing from the beginning of these series and beliefs, we first try to see... First, we try to see, can we establish the truth, the, the validity of any belief through reason? And once we're done that, then we go to see, can we add to that? Can we see what the scripture tells us? Why do we begin with reason? We begin with reason for a number of reasons. The first of these reasons is that if you are not someone who has believed in the scripture yet, is the belief still good or not? So let's say you're not someone who has believed in the Holy Quran yet. 
Will you still believe? Can we still prove that there is an afterlife? Even if you do not want to rely on the Holy Quran or not. And what we showed is that yes, you are still forced to believe in an afterlife, even if the Holy Quran did not say there is an afterlife. Even if the scripture did not say. And so we begin with reason, and that's what we did with the other beliefs too. The difference is that in the past, for the other beliefs, when we're trying to establish that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists, when we're trying to establish that there are prophets, you can rely on the Holy Quran, because if you haven't proved that there is a God, or that there is prophethood and revelation, you can't jump and rely on the Holy Quran, which is itself a revelation. You begin with reason, you establish it based on reason, which we did, and then we establish that there is a God, we establish what His attributes are, that there is prophethood and revelation, then that one of the prophets is Prophet Muhammad and that his main scripture and his reason, uh, his miracle is the Holy Quran, and the Holy Quran is valid, and the same Quran that was revealed to him, the same message that was revealed to him, is the one that we have today. We proved all of this, which means that I can now rely on the Holy Quran as one more source, one more proof to get the information I need regarding the afterlife. So when we begin with reason, what did we say about what reason can tell us about the afterlife? We said that there are two main arguments, each one of them with multiple ways, multiple statements, multiple versions, but there are two main arguments that we presented to prove the afterlife based on reason. The first one is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is wise. And how is this based on reason if we're talking about God? It's because we already proved that there is a God. And we already proved that God has certain attributes, characteristics. And one of them was wisdom. We said if there is a God and we proved that there is, then that God needs to be, has to be wise. And also that God has to be just. So now we're going to go back to those arguments and say, given that that God is wise, there has to be an afterlife. Why? As we said, we gave multiple reasons. The main one, the main way of understanding this, the simplest way is to say, if there is a God who created this world, and there is a God who created this world, and if this God is wise, then all of his actions have to have purpose. He does not act without reason, without purpose. He doesn't do things in a random way, for no reason. So when we look at the state of this world, when we look at how a human being is created, we see that a human being has certain needs. We see that human beings have certain wants. One of them, one of those needs, is that human beings want to live forever. And, said, and so we wonder, if God is truly wise, would He have created a need in a human being that cannot be fulfilled? That cannot be fully met? And we gave an example. We said, imagine that you have an engineer who, who builds a building of 10 stories, 10 floors. So he created a second floor to the first one. He could have created just one floor, but he decided to create more floors. 
But when you go into the building, you see that he did not give you any way to reach the second floor or the third floor or the fourth floor. There is no way to get out of the first floor. You can get into the first floor, but there's no way to use the other floors. There's no stairway, there's nothing in place to get into the other floors. Anyone who would look at this would say this is not very effective. If all you needed was the first floor, you should have only created, built one floor. And if you had a reason, if you had a purpose for the other floors, then you should have created a way to use them, to make use of them. This is wisdom. This is at the level of a human being and their actions. So when we come to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator of the world, if you find something in this world, it has a purpose. One of the things we find in this world is that when we look at a human being, we see that a human being wants to live forever. So why would God put that need in you if He does not give you a way to fulfill that need, to meet that need? If He doesn't, then someone can object and say, uh, He's probably not a, as wise of a creator as He could have been. His creation is not very effective. Unless there is more than just this world. If we're only looking at this world and we see that human beings are only stuck in this world and they end up dying and there's nothing after, that's true. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would be unwise, ineffective, putting something without purpose. And this shows us because we know for sure that God has purpose behind every act. Therefore, you know that there has to be another world. There has to be another existence to you in which you will be able to fulfill, to meet that need that is in you, which is to live forever. That's the first argument from reason. The second one, the argument from justice. We said when we look at this world, again, we haven't used any verses of the Quran, we're just using reason. When we look at the state of this world, we see that this is not a fair world. This is not a just world. This is a world in which, in a lot of cases, those who do good are not rewarded for the good they do. Sometimes they're not even recognized. Sometimes they're even punished. Sometimes they're even killed for the good that they do. And on the opposite side, it's a world in which those who do bad are not always punished for the bad that they do. And sometimes, not only are they not punished, sometimes this world rewards those who do bad. Those who do bad and do evil can live very good lives, comfortable, luxurious lives. And if we look at the amount or the quality of the good and the bad, we can see that there are too many examples of good that we can never reward in this world. And too many examples of bad that we can never punish in this world. If someone, for instance, kills 10 people, how do you punish them? What's the most that you could do to them? You can never do anything that will recreate, that will reestablish justice for the 10 people who died. You can do symbolic things. You can say, as a matter of convention, we're going to say 25 years in jail represents one life. So we're going to say he's going to be in jail for 75 years 
for three people. And the rest is symbolic because it's going to be represented by a full human life and we stop there. What can you do? What can you do if someone, let's say you have someone who sees that a fire, a building is on fire and there are 10 people in it and they run in the building and they sacrifice their life and they save all 10 people. And at the end of this operation, they die. What can you do to reward this person? They saved 10 lives and they died. There's nothing in this world that you can give them, especially after they have left this world, that you can reward them with. And so if you look at this world, you would say, this is not a fair world. This is not a just world. So what's the problem of saying that? Well, it's because we've said in the past that God, the creator of this world, is just. So we have a problem. And once again, the solution to this problem is that this is only a problem if you think that this world is all that exists. If this is all there is, this world, then yes, this is an unjust world and it would be an unjust God. But if this God tells you this is not all there is, there is another world and that world is created to reestablish justice, not this one. This is a world of tests. Don't expect justice in this world. I haven't created this world for justice, for fairness. It's not a fair world. Your job here is to do the best you can with what you have. That's it. And you leave this world and I will take care of justice in the next world. And so we, pro we prove the afterlife out of necessity with this argument. We say, if this is an unjust world and God is just, there has to be another world to allow us to reestablish justice. Okay? So these were the rational arguments to establish the afterlife. Beyond that, we said, now let's go back to the Holy Quran to see what it says about the afterlife. And so we saw that the Holy Quran has a whole strategy, a whole process. We said the Holy Quran, one third of the verses of the Quran have to do with the afterlife. 2,000 verses of the Qur'an talk about the afterlife. We're not going to cover that in a couple of lectures. But we want to see what does the Holy Qur'an say first, because we're going to talk about what the Holy Qur'an says about the afterlife and its characteristics later. But first, what does it say about proving the afterlife? We said first the Holy Qur'an begins by showing that those who deny that there's an afterlife, those who reject the belief in the afterlife, the Holy Quran says they have no proof. They have no reason. They have no valid logical reason for rejecting the afterlife. There is no proof. That's one. Two, the most that they could say is that it's unlikely. It's too fantastic to imagine that there is an afterlife. So we saw the Holy Quran say it's actually not unlikely at all. If you look all around you and you understand how nature works, you can see the cycle of life and death, of death and life happening all around you all the time, which is resurrection, which is an example that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put for you. And this is a, something the Holy Quran repeats again and again. I've created this world in this way so that you believe that there's an afterlife. I intentionally created the world with this cycle of life and death so that you see it happening all around you all the time 
so that you see that it is not only unlikely, it's very likely and it's happening all around you. Okay, so this was the second stage. And we saw the examples that the whole Quran gives. In addition to this, it cites the, a number of stories, the resurrection of Prophet Isa السلام, of people who were dead, of Prophet Ibrahim السلام, of the birds that he cut up and he brought back, of the Prophet who's not mentioned by name in the Quran, but most likely Prophet Isaiah in Surah Al-Baqarah who was put to, to death for 100 years and brought back to life so that he sees how Allah Taala brings back his, his donkey and his food we saw all of those examples, or the story of the people of the cave and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put them to sleep for 300 years and brought them back to life. And then after all of this, we said the Holy Quran. So first it shows that there is no proof for denying, that it is not unlikely and there's a lot of evidence that it's happening all around you all the time. That's two. Then we said the Holy Quran moves, right? It goes all the way to starting to show its own proofs. It answers a few objections, the main objections they have, it answers them, and then it proves its own, it provides its own arguments. And those arguments, once again, were built on divine justice and divine wisdom. We said the whole Quran clearly states in many of his, ver of his verses that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had created this world without another world after it, then this creation would be without purpose. It's as though God is playing, and God is not playing. We saw that in multiple verses. We also saw that there are multiple verses that say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would never allow the treatment of those who are good and the treatment of those who are bad to be the same. So it cannot be limited to this world. There has to be another world where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows you His full power and His full justice. Okay, so this is what we said. And then, with all of this in mind, we said we added that the Holy Quran adds to this one more argument, which is, and the afterlife is a divine promise. So in addition to these arguments, which are rational arguments in the Quran, there's also the divine promise. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when I make a promise, I do not break it. It's not becoming of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make a promise and to break the promise. So regardless of anything else that we've said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when I make a promise, I keep it. And I'm promising you that there will be an, a resurrection, there will be a life after death, and it will be an eternal life, and these are its characteristics. Okay? So in short, this is the summary of the... 10, 12 lectures that we've had in the past little while in this series. So where do we want to go from here? We want to, now that we know there is an afterlife, we've established clearly that, that there is an afterlife. We want to get to know the afterlife. We want to understand the characteristics of the afterlife. And the reason for this is that we think the afterlife is different from this world. And this is an important point and we're going to come back to it. When we began this series, we said it's not enough to know that there is a life after death. It's important, but it's not enough. You have to know what kind of life there is after death. 
Because if you're someone who believes, let's say, in reincarnation, eternal reincarnation, that's a completely different belief and a completely different worldview than believing that you are going to live once in this world and then you're going to spend your eternal existence after this world based on what you did in this one life that you had. And inshallah we can talk more about that at the end. Okay, so now we want to start getting into the details of getting to understand what awaits us after we die. Okay, so inshallah this part is going to start being a little bit more practical and more interesting because the first part we need to establish the proofs for the afterlife. So, before we jump into human knowledge, why do we need it? Why do we need our human knowledge? Why do we need some sort of knowledge about the afterlife? The very practical reason is that imagine that you were to travel somewhere. If someone came to you tomorrow and they told you, we have a long trip. You're going to be spending six months in a land that you know nothing about. For the next six months, we're going to travel and stay at Greenland. What do you know about Greenland? Nothing. So you're going to do research. You're going to try to understand how is it to live in Greenland. Am I staying with people? Am I staying in a hotel? Or am I all alone in nature? How am I going to dress? Is it a hot place? Is there a desert? Is it cold? Is it mountains? What kind of clothes do I take? How do I prepare for food? How do I prepare for shelter? What do I need to know about that place so that I'm prepared and I can live for six months in Greenland? And this is normal. You want to prepare before you go somewhere. Well, if we now know for sure that we are dying, and we know for sure that we're going to be staying there for a very long time, it's only logical that we try to spend a little bit of time to see what is going to happen after we die and to prepare for the kind of world that we're going to have after death. Okay? So this is the reason. This is a practical reason. Now beyond the practical reason, now we want to see what can we do as human beings, what can we do to get to know the afterlife? So, by default, what we've been doing until now is that when we want to know something, we start by reason. And then we see what scripture says. So now, let's apply it to the same topic. We want to understand the characteristics of the afterlife. So what can I learn from human knowledge, from human reason about the afterlife? When human beings know something about this world, they're relying on two main sources of knowledge. The first one is reason, as in what they can do with their mind, their logic. And they can know a lot of things with their logic and with their reasoning. And they're relying on their senses, their empirical senses, their sight, their smell, their touch, the five senses that we have. In order to know something, human beings have to have a direct experience of it. If you don't experience something directly, 
you will never get to really know it. There are things that you experience partially. Someone tells you, I ate, I ate a fruit, I ate a banana, and you've never eaten a banana. Can you know how that banana tastes? You will never know what the banana tastes like exactly. But they can maybe give you examples of things that you've eaten that in some ways are similar to a banana. So they can tell you in texture, it's like this fruit. And in taste, it feels like that and it has the sweetness of that other fruit. But it's not exactly the same, it's a little bit different. And so you can maybe imagine what a banana may taste like. Will that imagination match what the banana tastes like? Never. When will you know? You'll know when you'll eat the banana. This is a lot worse if someone tells you, for instance, I have a problem on my tongue, for instance, and I am unable to taste anything. And you want to explain to them what sweet tastes like. You'll never be able to explain to them what sweet tastes like. Because you don't have any other reference points to tell them it's like this. It's a little bit like this. You don't have anything. When a human being tries to understand something, they need points of reference and they need a direct experience. The afterlife, none of us have been. The afterlife, none of us know anyone who has gone. And we don't know anything about it that is similar to this world. So the most that we can say is we're going to try to rely on what we are being told about it. Can we use our human reason to understand what will happen in the afterlife? Yes and no. The details of the afterlife, we can never know them by reason. The general characteristics, we can know some of them. So this is what we're going to try to do today. So, the beginning of our discussion is, can we rely on our human reason to know the afterlife? Well, it depends. The details of it, we can never know. And the reason is simple. We do not have any direct experience of the afterlife or anything similar to the afterlife. What happens after we die? We don't know. This is still at the level of reason. We can't look at the Holy Quran yet. This is scripture. Now we're relying on reason first. That's what we're saying. Can reason tell us anything about the afterlife? That we can rely on and say this is what the afterlife looks like. There's a topic that we talked about many lectures ago, but because we have a lot of people joining, I keep repeating some of these things. I think they're important. We had entire lectures on the topic of prophethood. We said, why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveal something to human beings? And we give a number of reasons. One of those reasons is that revelation is an additional source of knowledge. One source of knowledge that we have is the five senses. When I see something, that's one source of knowledge. When I touch something, when I taste, when I feel, these are sources of knowledge. All of them together, they are one type. We refer to it as empirical knowledge. We also have reason. I can do one plus one equals two in my head. Entirely in my head. 
I know that there are, if there are parts that make up a whole, then the parts have to be smaller than the whole. I can do that in my head. These are laws of logic. I can do all of that in my head. I can use both of these to get to know the world. So if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who has given me these sources of knowledge, why does He, in addition to those, also give me revelation? Why does He have to send me a prophet with a message? And we gave a number of reasons. One of them is that we need role models. Okay, so let's put that one aside. Another one is that there are things that no matter how much reason and empirical knowledge you have, you will never know. One example is the afterlife. Maybe you can use your reason and you can use your empirical knowledge to discover the world, to discover the laws of nature. So you do your experiments, you go and you explore, you discover an element, you see what its characteristics are. If you put it with another element, you see that it produces other characteristics. Now you have a Molecules put together to create a substance, there's compounds, you discover gravity, you discover different types of energy and light and how the world works, great. If you go back to the scripture, you see it doesn't talk a lot about these things. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave you the tools to discover them on your own. So you have to use those tools in that way. But with those tools that God gave you, can you know what happens after you die? Can you do experiments? Can you sit and think in your corner? No. And this is where you see one of the main reasons why we have religion. One of the main reasons why we have revelation is that it gives us access to knowledge that can only be known by the creator of the world. Can only be known by the one who created not only this world, but the next world, which we don't have access to. And that's why human beings who don't rely on the scriptures they create all sorts of theories for themselves. Some of them say there's reincarnation. Some of them say we die and nothing happens, and so on and so forth. You can try, but you will not have any reason to believe one theory, one option over another. You need someone to tell you this is the truth, and that someone has to be the one who created it, or someone who's sent from them. Okay, so that was the other point that we talked about when we talked about prophethood. So when we link it to our topic now about the afterlife, we see that there are limitations to what a human being can do with their reason and with their tools, the tools of human knowledge. And so you are going to rely, without choice, you have to rely on revelation to understand the afterlife. Okay? If you look at how people have used their reason, you see that they have not used revelation properly, and they have excessively relied. They have exaggerated their reliance on their reason to understand the afterlife. And we don't want to go through all of the different theories. We're going very quickly here. But the idea is that this is something that has happened a lot even within our religion. There are a lot of people who want to understand religion only based on reason, an exaggerated reliance on reason. Anything that they don't understand in religion is reinterpreted based on reason. And my reason. It may not be yours, it has to be mine. 
so that it makes sense to me, which is very problematic. This is where we have to distinguish clearly between a valid rational argument, that's the necessity, that's the importance of understanding how logic works, so that you can quickly tell if someone is using a fallacy, as they call it, in logic. They're using logic in the wrong way. They're using logic to prove something, but that's a completely wrong conclusion. And they tell you this is based on reason. This has happened a lot. We have entire tafasir of the Qur'an written in this way. There are tafasir in the Qur'an that tell you, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, it talks about Iblis and Shaytan, and they will tell you, yeah, but there is no such thing as an Iblis or Shaytan, it's not a real entity. It's just the part of you that's kind of telling you to do the things that you know are wrong, that's Iblis or Shaytan. But there is no Iblis or Shaytan. There are tafasir of the Qur'an, for instance, you read Surah Al-Fil, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that He sent birds carrying small stones made of fire. They say, well, it could be anything. For instance, viruses that were on the legs of a mosquito or a fly, and that's probably what happened. And it was really not something miraculous or supernatural. It was just a disease, a plague, like any other plague that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends. But anyone who understands this, these verses and sort of the field knows that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about it, it's because it was miraculous. It was because it was something that Allah did to show His power. So breaking away with the order of things. It was not just the normal way that things happen. So all of this to say, this is a completely different discussion, but all this to say, it's dangerous to just rely on reason, even if it's within religion. There is a place for reason. Reason is meant to discover certain things. The tools that you have are meant to discover certain things, but you have to know what are its limitations, and for the rest, you have to go back to revealed scripture, the revealed truth from Allah. Beyond that, you can't know. We have nothing that will tell us this is a correct theory or that is a correct theory. If I have something from God that says, this is the truth, that's the end. That's it, it's from God, and that's the truth. And this is where reason, reason can't really say anything more here. It has a limitation. It's something that is outside of its reach. So, examples of misconceptions, and I don't want to spend too much time on this. One example is that there are those who say the afterlife is actually part of this world. They say that, for instance, humanity is going to evolve to a point where they are going to be able to live in complete luxury and comfort and happiness and it may not be even on this planet. And if you want to look at the hell side of it, hell and heaven are nothing more than our existence here or on other, in other worlds in this universe. For instance, humanity may travel somewhere else those who stay behind may get burned, may get destroyed because they did not travel and escape. And those who traveled are the ones who made it and who were successful. And that's the end of humanity. There are some who have proposed theories like these. Others, for instance, they've talked about more symbolic theories. They say that heaven is actually not somewhere you go after you die. Heaven is the values that you carry in yourself and that you can actually apply in your life. And if everybody did that, then you create the heaven 
in this world. These kinds of theories. And as I said, I don't want to go into all the different permutations. I think you get the point. That's the idea. This is where you see the issue is over-reliance, an exaggerated reliance on reason. Your reason is not allowed to say this is what the afterlife is or isn't. You're not equipped for that. You can come up with any conjecture, any theory, but it doesn't mean anything. You have no way of testing, of validating, of saying this is scientific and this is not. You're just making up stuff. Yes, it could be or it couldn't be. So in other words, it's meaningless. So we don't waste any time with that. And very quickly to answer these theories, they go completely against anything and everything we know about the afterlife. We said if the afterlife that we established was based on divine wisdom and divine justice. So if we take the theory of traveling, for instance, clearly that's not compatible with divine wisdom if we said divine wisdom is about living for eternity. If I went to live on another planet in a very luxurious life, how does that solve my problem of wanting to exist forever? It doesn't. The same thing can be said about divine justice. What happens to all those who did not exist before humanity went there? All those who had died, all those who had done a lot of good or a lot of bad, do they just go into oblivion and stop existing and there's no justice that will ever be reestablished for them? And the same thing can be said about the other theory, which is it's all symbolic. Okay, but what do we do with all the reports and all the narrations and all the verses that there is a resurrection, there is a life after death? Where is the resurrection here? And what, once again, what do we do about divine justice? How do we reestablish that? So this is all to put very quickly aside these kinds of theories and to see that there are human, to human knowledge there are clearly limitations. Now, does this mean that we completely dismiss anything and everything that we find about these topics? If you go back to theology, and al-Kalam, Aba'id, belief, beliefs, philosophy, Islamic philosophy, you see that books upon books, volumes have been written about topics related to the afterlife. And we talked about some of them. We presented some of them. We spent a lot of time, for instance, talking about how do we establish that our resurrection in the afterlife is going to be bodily, that we're going to have a body, it's going to be corporeal. It's not just limited to the soul. It's not only spiritual, right? So if you go back to these discussions, you see there is an over-reliance in a lot of cases on reason. Again, in theology and in philosophy. Do we want to say that it's all bad and don't waste any time looking at it and all of that? Absolutely not. First of all, the attempt to discuss and think and discover truths related to the afterlife is very important. At least it shows that you're taking the topic seriously. And it's a very serious topic. It's a very important topic. You do need to take it seriously. Secondly, if you want to look at the end of a human being, you're going to see that it's going to be directly affected by this. If you know that your life or the life of humanity in general is directly affected, it's only normal that you want to give this type of importance to this type of topic. So that's not the issue. That's one. Secondly, we know that in a lot of cases the efforts are 
sincere. And it actually does produce some productive and good discussions about a lot of these topics. But usually it stops short. It runs out of steam. At some point, you have no definitive way of saying this is truth and this is not truth. And this is where the biggest issue is. Bottom line, none of these are going to allow you to know the truth in detail. Not theology or Ibn Kalam in general, not philosophy, none of these. They will only get you so far and then it will stop. And so this is what we're going to try to establish today. If you look at our existence in this world, you see that even with our tools, when they are used appropriately in their proper way to discover the truth about this world, you see that we still have a very long way to go. Things that the majority of the people, I think, they take for granted. They think that they are very well known by specialists and so on and so forth. The truth is, we don't know anything about those things. We have what they call in, in the philosophy of science, they call them models. They have a best model which is made up of theories and postulates. I create a hypothesis. I notice, I observe things. I go back and I think, what's the best explanation for this? That's my hypothesis. And I say, if my hypothesis is true, then this needs to be the evidence that corroborates it. Each, one, each time I find something that corroborates, it adds to the probability that maybe it does correspond to reality. And if someone shows something that contradicts, then that weakens. So it's never an absolute. It's always a probability. And tomorrow someone may come and say, I have a better explanation than yours, and that becomes a theory. Because your theory, from what you observed, your theory explains 60% of that, mine explains 70% of that. So science moves to that theory because it, it explains 70% and not 60. That's how science works. And inshallah one day we'll talk more about the philosophy of science. But here are some examples of things that today in the world of science, when human beings have used their reason and their empirical knowledge fully and well, correctly, you see that there are huge shortcomings and these things are not known. The reality, the nature of these things is not known in science today. These are models. Tomorrow any of these models could change. One of them is matter. What is matter made of? It's not known. In fact, if you really drill down and you see there are, there's a model that talks about atomic particles. When they go back to the particles that make up the atoms, it starts going, is it a string? And is the string only a vibration of energy? Or is there something else? That's one. That, that's one field completely unknown. What is matter made of? Energy. No one knows the essence, the nature of energy. The different forces. Until today they have huge problems with a force like gravity. They can describe how it works, but they don't know what it is. And in fact, gravity, there's four big forces that, that we know of human beings. There are big, four big forces that basically dictate how the universe works. Three of them seem to work together, and then you have gravity, which does not work like the others. So why is that? It looks like there's a gap, there's something we don't know that makes these, there has to be a continuum, or these are all one thing, but it manifests itself differently. 
We don't know. And gravity stands out in those forces. That's one thing. The origin of the universe, that's a well-known question. We spent lectures on that. The fate of the universe, we talked about that a few times. There's different theories. Some say there's a big crunch. Others say there's a equilibrium, so the universe will just go on like this forever and nothing will happen. The others say it's cyclical. It goes in a big bang and a big crunch again and again and so on and so forth. And there's other theories. They have no clue. The size of the universe. They have no clue of the size of the universe. Probably the majority of you have heard that the universe has existed for 13.5 billion years and this is its size and so on. It's 93 billion years wide or big and so on and so forth. That's actually only if you accept the very superficial understanding. If you really understand how the calculation is made, it's based on what we call our horizon, which is everything that we know is based on how much light has reached Earth. And then we estimate on how big the universe is. But now that they know the universe is expanding a lot faster than we ever thought, it means that what we're seeing from the universe is actually shrinking. We don't know everything that we've never seen or that we will never see because it's always going further away from us. The size of the universe, completely unknown, which causes huge problems. Like what? For instance, dark matter and dark energy. We have no clue what dark matter is. What's dark matter? For all of our physics to make any sense in the world, Human beings have calculated how much matter there needs to be in the universe. The problem is that when they look at how much matter there is, they only find maybe 10, 15%, maybe less of that matter there. You see the galaxies, the stars, everything that we know, life, earth, everything that exists, makes up about 15% of how much matter there needs to be for the universe to make sense. So there's somewhere like 85% of the matter that we need for the physics to make sense that we have no clue about. We don't know where it is, but we add it in there to make the math work. This they call dark matter. We don't know what it is, we create theories about it, we don't see it, so we call it dark, we don't know how it works, we call it dark. That's dark matter. And of course, there's all the energies that go with dark matter. Okay? Antimatter. Antimatter is something that they can actually create. For every atoms are made up of particles. Every particle in an atom has characteristics. It has spin, it has mass, and so on and so forth. Antimatter is matter, the same particles that have the opposite characteristics. And when they do some experiments, they can create antimatter. So it actually exists. And it looks like in the universe, there is some antimatter that exists. The problem is that, as a physicist, you look at something, you look at this universe and you say, okay, the universe is mostly made up of matter and there's a little bit of antimatter. Okay, why is there only a little bit of antimatter? It should all be the same. Or you need to be able to explain why there is more or less of one. What changed? If this is all random and it ha it's happening on its own, 
you have to have a mathematical or a physical explanation for this. They call this an asymmetry. There is a lot of matter and very, very little antimatter. And of course, if this were different, the universe would not exist, just so that you know. But we don't know why. No one has a clue why antimatter is the way it is and there's this much of it. Okay, that's examples. The nature of space, I spent too much time on this. The nature of space, we don't know what space is made of. The number of dimensions, we don't know. We think, you know, in theory we all see the four, right? There's the three dimensions of matter and then there's time. Those are the ones we feel directly. But in math, the majority of the math in string theory, for instance, they have 11 dimensions. Otherwise, the math doesn't make sense, and so on and so forth. What if one of the forces stopped? What would make it stop? How do we know that gravity will always be there in the universe? Or that any of the other, you know, the nuclear forces or anything else will always be there in the universe? And what would happen if one of these ceased? We don't know. And so on and so forth. These are all examples. And then, so this is the stuff that we should be able to do something about when we combine our five senses with our reason. So here we are, as human beings, wanting to talk about the reality of the afterlife. When we really don't know that much about our own world, even the most fundamental basic things about it. Those things that science is, you know, practicing, this is what we're researching, and this is the latest that human beings are looking at and discovering, and this is the basic building blocks of our existence. We're not even really like manipulating them, doing anything with them. It's just understanding them. We don't know anything about that. And if you want to take things that are purely philosophical, not empirical philosophical, like the first ones, purely philosophical, Problems like perception. How do human beings perceive? One of the biggest problems they have, the psychologists who are now working in teams of 10, 12, 15 fields of specialists together, how does reading work? When a human being sees a word, what is actually happening in the brain so that the word is interpreted in a certain way within a sentence, within a book, back into the experience of this human being to create meaning in the mind. No one knows. You may get the impression sometimes when they dumb it down that it's all well understood and easy. No one knows how it works. This is an example, perception. Another example, consciousness. No one knows what consciousness is. What's the difference between you and a stone? Is that you apparently have consciousness. You know, not only do you exist, and don't, not only do you feel that you exist, but you actually even know, this is self-consciousness, self-awareness, you know that you exist. Maybe there are animals or entities, creatures, I don't know, maybe the leaf of the tree, maybe it doesn't know that it exists. It just exists. It feels alive, but it doesn't know that it's alive. It doesn't have the abstract cognitive power to think about its own existence like a human being. How does this work? We don't know. And yet, the issue is, here's where we see the limitations of human reason, of human knowledge. And this is where you see clearly that you cannot just take this and apply it to the afterlife and say, therefore I know everything that will happen to a human being after they die. How about you concentrate on your existence in this world and use your mind and your reason and your knowledge properly where it belongs and you leave the rest to God. Okay, that's in short what we're trying to say here.
So, are we saying that we completely neglect human reason? Of course not. First of all, we did agree and we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us these, these faculties, these powers for specific reasons. To discover the world, to build and develop this world, to make our lives better. There is no issue with that. In fact, as we have said in the past, we have a religious obligation, we think, that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us these powers and these faculties, to use them in this way. Otherwise, this is being ungrateful. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rejects that. That's why. So long, so the issue is, so long as we recognize where these powers, where these faculties begin and end. Okay? And in short, the whole Quran talks about all of this. In one of the verses it says, and you have only been given a little bit of knowledge. And you have not been given any knowledge except a little surah so Okay? So, if we want now to talk about the afterlife, this was a huge long introduction, but I think it's an important one for all of the next lectures that we're going to embark on this journey of exploring the afterlife. So, the first thing is, if we want to be objective, we want to be logical, scientific, clear in our thinking, and we want to present things that are conclusive and valid. In order to do that, we have to admit that our human reason is limited, constrained. We cannot rely on it to know the afterlife because we do not have direct access to it. That's one. We should be humble. We should recognize that limitation and that constraint. And from a religious perspective, we need to show a little bit of precaution. Before I start speaking, talking on behalf of God and how the afterlife is, I need to show a little bit of precaution. I should not speak on behalf of God or say this is how the afterlife is or isn't. I should go see what God has said about it and apply it. Okay? The last point is, and of course there's the responsibility that comes with that, especially beyond myself, but even for myself, if I actually believe that there's an afterlife, then depending on what I say about it, I may live differently. So there's a responsibility related to that. The other aspect, though, is that I can rely on knowledge to establish truths about the afterlife, except that those truths are very high level. They are not detailed. And so this is where I need to recognize that with reason, I'm going to have limitations. So I have to, one way or another, rely on revelation. One way or another, rely on scripture. And once scripture comes in, I have to accept it for what it is. If it says something that I don't understand, my job is to try to understand it, not force my own interpretation on it, or not dismiss it, or say, because I don't understand, therefore it's not true. Okay? But inshallah, we're going to get more into that the next times we need. With all of that said, here are the five quick characteristics we can clearly establish and say about the afterlife without relying on scripture. Okay? The first one. And of course, all of this, because we're basing it on reason, it's based on what we've already established, which is, there is an afterlife, and we prove the afterlife through divine wisdom, that God has wisdom, He acts with purpose, and divine justice, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will, will reestablish fairness, justice in this world. 
Okay? Those are the two principles we are building all of this on. The first characteristic. The first one is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the world that He has created, the afterlife, has to be a world that allows us to live forever. Therefore, it is a world that will be everlasting and eternal. How do we derive this from divine wisdom? We said if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in me a need to exist forever, then He has to create a world that allows me to exist forever. Rule number one, the afterlife is eternal and everlasting. I can prove this with reason. Rule number two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is the example I just gave, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in me needs, wants, faculties, perfections that can only be reached in no way in this world. So that world has to have characteristics that allow me to reach those perfections fully. Okay, and inshallah we're going to get into a lot more details related to that in the future. But one example of that is, for instance, to live forever. That's one example. There's a lot more. The third is that we know in this world there is good and there is bad. No more details. I know for sure that there is light and dark. There is good and bad. Good and evil. That much I know. That much I see. That much every human being should recognize. Therefore, that world has to be a world that will treat, that will deal with differently good and bad. This is established based on divine justice. More than that, if this is a world in which there was unfairness and injustice, that world has to be a world in which there will be full fairness and full justice. So not only does it have to accommodate good and bad, or those who are good and those who are bad, it has to accommodate them fully. So you remember my example of someone who saves the lives of 10 or 100 or 1,000 people? Or my example of someone who kills a 1,000 or a million people? You can't do anything about it in this world to reestablish justice. That world has to be a world that allows you to reestablish justice. This is the kind of world it has to be. How? I can't tell the details. But I know based on reason that it has to be that type of world. And finally, and more importantly than all of this, and of course none of these are to be taken alone. You have to combine them together. The most important trait, the most important characteristics of, characteristic of that world is that it cannot be a world of action. It can only be a world of consequences. This is the world of action. This is a world of choice. This is the world of responsibility. You have a freedom in this world, a freedom of will to choose. Next world cannot be a world like this one. Because if it is, then you're going to have to have an afterlife to that world. Therefore, any choices you have, any decisions to make, any responsibility that you carry, is going to end the day you die. 
And that world can only be a world where you get back the rewards of what you have put in in this world. If there is a single choice to make, if there is a single freedom that is given to you with a responsibility in the afterlife, it means there, it needs another afterlife behind it to deal with, to reestablish the justice of that world. So that's impossible. Otherwise, you fall into a regression. You're going to have one more afterlife after that one, which we reject, and inshallah, we will establish that with scripture too. But this is what reason tells us. So these are the five characteristics that we conclude only based on reason when we look at the afterlife. Now, I had a lot more points here, but I'm not going to go in them. Maybe the next time we meet, we can go through these. The point I was trying to make here at the bottom line is that I think for a lot of us, we think that this is shared commonly by a lot of human beings, so long as they believe in God or religion, that they believe in something similar to this. And I would invite you to go and do a bit of research to see if you find any other group on earth who believes in this kind of belief that we have. Even if you go back to the history of the Jewish tradition, for instance, you'll see that for centuries, Today, if you read their books, the books of history of, of Judaism, they say that their belief in an afterlife only began around Christianity. So they had been in existence for how many centuries? They say they did not believe in an afterlife. The reason I say this is because in a lot of these cases, it looks like we're going in detail. But those details are important. People who are stuck in a, let's say, a Christian tradition or a Judaic tradition today, they imagine the afterlife as an extension of this world. We are going to show, and this is what we started today, it's not an extension of this world. This world completely stops. Everything ends here. And we move into a completely different reality and a completely different existence. And only with these things that we said, that should be sufficient to see it cannot work in this world. We need a completely different world with its own natural laws to allow for these things that we just proved rationally to be the case. Okay? So allow me just to end this last point so that we don't drag it more. This last point, this is that the next world, based both on justice and on wisdom, but the, the argument that we demonstrated, which is if that world is also a world of action, then we're going to need another afterlife for it. But this is because it's both based on wisdom and justice. Let's look at a word, a famous word from Imam Ali although we said this is only rational. Look at it rationally. But a word from Imam Ali which is very famous, but I wanted to give you the full quote from Imam Ali just so that you know where it comes from. And the quote in Arabic is اليوم I'm sure you've heard this a lot. So I thought I would just give you the sermon in Najil Balagha in which the Imam says this, which is Sermon 42. Very short sermon. So this is what the Imam says. O people, that which I fear most for you are two things. Following your desires and prolonging of hope. So you keep extending your hope in the afterlife in this world, 
You think you're going to live for a very long time. That's extension of, of hope. As regards to acting according to desires, so the reason why I'm telling you don't act based on desires, this prevents from truth. If you act on desires, if you act on desires, it makes you blind to the truth. You stop seeing the truth. If you're someone who follows their desire, it blinds you from seeing the truth. I know I'm repeating it, you're not paying attention. And as regards to extending or prolonging your hopes in this world, it makes one forget the next world. You keep thinking, I'm going to live another 5 years, another 10 years, another 50 years, another 100 years, or I'm going to live as though there's no end to my life. You forget the other world. You forget that you're going to die. You forget that you're supposed to be prioritizing the afterlife. So Muhammad says, the two things I fear most for you is acting based on desires and prolonging your hopes in this world. You should know that this world has indeed moved away rapidly. Why? It doesn't look to me like it's moving away rapidly. Why would the Imam say that? This is a deep thought. The Imam is saying, if, someone, if something is moving towards something that is inevitable, it's not that maybe there's an end. No, no. Something is moving towards an end. And you know 100% that it's moving towards that end. Then it's moving away. When the Iran said, you should know that this world has indeed moved away rapidly. In other words, you have to look at this world as something that's leaving you. It's already moved in that direction. You know, when the ball is in your hand and it's not moving, nothing is happening. But if you go on top of a building and you let it go, and it's now headed down, it's now a completely different discussion because it's inevitable that it's going down. It's moving towards an end. It's not stable now. It's moving. So that's why he says, the world has indeed moved away rapidly. It's already moved. And nothing has remained of it except the last leftovers like the dregs of a vessel which has been emptied by someone. The dregs are like, you know, the last, the last morsels. Imagine you have a, a, a jug of water and someone has emptied the jug and then they put it back. So you come and you take a look and you only see a little bit of water left in there. You try to get it out and you may get a few drops. This is what the Imam says. He says, this is what's left of the world. Dregs at the bottom of an empty vessel. That's the leftover. The world was this whole filled thing, and now that's all that's left of it. Beware, for the next world is indeed quickly advancing. It's advancing towards you, or you're advancing towards it. And both of them, the mom says, and in Arabic it works better, he says both of them have children. This world and the next world has its own children, has its own followers. So be followers of the afterlife and do not become followers of this world because on the day of judgment, every child or every follower would cling to his mother. If you were people who associated with this world in the afterlife, you're going to be the people of this world. And if you were the people who associated with the afterlife now, in the afterlife, you're going to be the people who were with the afterlife. And then he says these famous words, Today is the day of action, and there is no reckoning, there is no rewarding and punishing in this world. There might be a little bit, but this is not what the world is created for. 
That's why there's no justice. So the Imam says, today is the day of action and there is no reckoning. And tomorrow is the day of reckoning and there shall be no opportunity for action. Let's stop here. If you have any questions, concerns, let's discuss quickly. Questions, concerns, comments? All clear? All good? Yes. Um, so, uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned in previous lectures, but um, uh, I know a lot of uh, ulama and shuq, they talk about the, the life of Barzakh after we die. So, uh, the fact that it has a different name, uh, the punishments are temporary. And uh, so, is it like a... Another world that uh, that's like before the afterlife, or is it part of the afterlife? It depends how you split. Okay, so both are fine. That's up to you to define how it is. For our practical purposes, like in in uh, for for the impact that it has on our lives, it's better to consider it as part of the afterlife. The moment we die, that's it. We can no longer do any action. So anything that happens after that, we can consider that as part of the afterlife. The reason why, it's a theoretical reason, the reason why we may want to split is that if you read the verses of the Quran, you will see that it clearly establishes that we currently live in a world and there will come a time when this world will end. For those who are alive and those who are dead in this world, this world will end. Okay. And then there will be another world, which will be the world that begins with the second shout or the second blast or blow of the trumpet. And we will be raised, a resurrection, a judgment, and then eternal happiness or unhappiness. Clearly these are two different worlds. The Barzakh exists right now. For those who have passed away, they are in the Barzakh. So those who want to split the two, they say the Barzakh is more part of this world, our world now. It's another dimension of this world. But that's a theoretical knot. That's why I'm saying, if you want to split it based just on theory, that's a theoretical answer. The Barzakh is part of this world because it's part of the current system that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in place. This system will be entirely replaced with a new system in the afterlife. Okay? That's a theoretical answer. The practical answer, which is how you live your life. How you live your life, our Imams have taught us to think about how you live your life and not in theory. They tell us the person who dies is as though Judgment Day has happened for them. And the reason is because that's it, you're stuck. You're bound, you're entirely bound, you're chained to your actions. Whatever you did, you're now stuck with in the world of Barzakh and you're stuck with in the afterlife. So in this way, for practical reasons, how you live your life, no, the Barzakh is the moment you leave this world, you're in the afterlife. Because there's no going back. And inshallah, the next time we meet, we're going to end the discussion with Barzakh. But that's actually a question I was going to ask you guys. From now on, so now we're done with the rational part. We want to now start exploring the afterlife from Scripture. We can do it quickly to provide a high-level overview and we move fast. 
So we may need three to four lectures, or we take a little bit more time and we give a little bit more detail. We could certainly have an entire lecture just on Adam and Barzakh, or we can talk about it for five minutes. So I leave it entirely up to you guys. And do you want to get in more details, or do you want to move faster so that we finish the series? So that's up to you. Inshallah, this is a quick answer for now. And as I said, we're going to talk more about, you'll see how it fits into the chain, and then it makes more sense and what the whole Quran says about Adam and Barzakh very quickly. But that's a very big topic. We can talk about it, certainly, for, for one or more lectures. So if there are no questions, I want you to think about that because I expect answers. Yes? Um, so this world is temporary yeah. and um, it has a finite uh, amount of time that it will exist. So that means that one person can only do a, a finite amount of good or bad. So from that perspective, how can you be rewarded infinitely or punished infinitely? I'm going to answer this with a full lecture, but you have to let me get to it. <laughs> okay? So that's coming okay. on both sides. So how can there be so much punishment and or how can there be so much reward in the afterlife when our lives in this world are so limited in time? If I'm living here 20 years, 50 years, 70 years, and that's all the time I have, why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talk about ahqaba, which is you know, chunks of 80 years, according to a lot of reports, or centuries, or Khalidina fiha abada, forever. How can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward or punish in this way when our actions look like they are so limited in this world? We're going to answer that. But we need to get to it. We're going to build on things, and then that will make sense. We're going to talk about what it means to do something in this world, and are we only is the relationship between an action and its consequences only a relationship where we only look at time, for instance? Or do we actually see in this world acts that perhaps take a second, but they have a lifetime of effects? Does that exist or not? We have to understand the nature of our deeds and how they become the reward or punishment of the afterlife. And then, the answer will become clearer. So you part that, and if I don't answer it when we get to it, which is in a few lectures, so the next lectures are supposed to be, we're going to go through the sequence of what happens. Just a very quick sequence, but that can be three to four lectures, or it could be more. Okay? You tell me. I'm waiting for the answer. On the moment of death, what happens, the interaction with the angels of death, what happens in the grave, and then what happens as this world ends and the new world begins. And as this is happening, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us there is a first blast in the trumpet, a second blast in the trumpet, the first one kills all living entities except what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to preserve, the second one brings them all back to life, and then the afterlife begins. And then there is, you know, the resurrection itself, there's a tribunal, the judgment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's heading to the eternal abode, and then actually being in heaven or hell. These are the next big steps, which we can cover quickly or spend more time on. And then after this is done, we can start drilling down into what is an action, a deed, an intention, what's the relationship between faith and a belief, 
a belief or faith and an action. And the act is what you're doing with your body. The faith is what you're carrying in your heart. What's the relationship between these? And why does it matter for the afterlife? Okay, so all of this is going to be building on. And then we will, you know, get in a few of the big objections or big questions, such as the nature of the punishment, the reward, the punishment, and then some big topics related to the afterlife, like intercession, for instance. And how does it make sense? How can we talk about an intercession, shafa'ah, when we are saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is absolutely fair? You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. So how come you, can, you might do bad and you still get good? Or the opposite. Sometimes you do good and you get bad. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks in the Quran about ihbab. There are people who do a lot of good and then suddenly it looks like all of their good actions have disappeared. So how does that work? And how is that all compatible with divine justice? So we'll talk about all of that and including in there is the big question that you asked today. So this is the rest of the series. You kind of have a plan of the next lessons. So can we do a quick survey in five seconds on who prefers to go faster, just more of an overview, which will probably be three to four lectures, or spend a little bit more time? And both are okay. I just want to see what the majority is, and we'll try to accommodate both anyways, but... Uh, overview. Overview? Okay. Uh, same <laughs> overview is good. Overview. Overview means we're going a little bit faster. Yeah. Yeah. yeah overview. I was thinking maybe a little bit more detail, but I mean, I guess Okay. The, no, no, no. You don't need to answer just like that. The detail, is it something specific or in general? Well, I was very interested in the, the barzakh. That's something that I had in mind. We can, we can, okay, the barzakh, because we got a question about it and you're saying that, we can dedicate one lecture to the barzakh. Okay, that's good. How's that? Same. Uh, Same? So overview, but one lecture for Barzakh. Okay. Same? Okay. I'm saying. Okay, that's easy. And I'm guessing online, I'm, I don't have any... Uh... Okay. I have a question online. How are punishments from God in this life categorized? Okay, I'm not sure I understand the question. But this is a topic that we're going to get into in detail, and I think um, spending more time, that's your answer. Okay, so you prefer, but you are the minority. Everybody prefers to go uh, faster uh, and get to the overview. What we agreed on is that we're going to cover the, uh, we're going to cover the main uh, sequence of events as an overview, I think it's probably going to be four lectures. So we're adding one more lecture specifically for Adam and Barzakh. And of course, at any time, if any of you guys want to can convince the others that we need to spend more time on any of the topics, just let me know and we'll add as many lectures as you want on any of them. Um, for the first question, how are punishments from God in this life categorized? I don't know which types of categories you mean. It could be, for instance, you know, you, I don't know, I don't want to assume. I have, I have a lot of interpretations to your question. Do you want to add more detail to your question, or do we leave it until we talk about this topic? 
Okay, so this is a topic that we talked about. We do believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, while He has not created this world for justice, He does tell us that when you act in the correct manner, like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to act, your life will be blessed. And if you act in a way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not want you to act, then you are going to live in unhappiness. But this is a general rule. And the more important rule is that this is a world of test. You are put in this world with free choice to see how you're going to make choices in this world. So you may still, even though you live the best life you can, you may still be tested. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I will test you with everything. I will test you with death. I will test you with disease. I will test you with famine. I will test you with poverty. Whatever you can think of, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I will test you with those things. It's not because you're good that you're not going to be tested. In fact, if you go back to the narration specifically, and even you know what we presented about prophethood, it looks like the better you are, the more you're going to be tested. Because that's the only way for you to reach your maximum, your full potential. If you're not tested, you haven't proven the next level. So this is to say, is it considered from this life or is it a bit of the afterlife? The punishment, no, no. This world is its own and the next world is its own. This world is a set of circumstances that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put us through. Our job is to do the best we can in the circumstances that we're put in. Sometimes the circumstances are ease and comfort and luxury and it looks like it's happiness. And sometimes the circumstances are difficulty and challenges and it requires a lot of patience. Both are a test in the same exact way. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Both, fitnatan. The good and the bad to you, they're equally a test. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to see when He gives you money, how do you spend it? Some people say, if I had money, I would do good with it. Okay, now you have money. Do you do good with it? No. You use it to do more bad. So it was, you were better off. You thought that you were not better off. But now you, you were better off without the money because you did not have the means to do the haram. For instance, as an example, sometimes we pray for more time. We pray for health. We pray for family. We pray for all sorts of things. Whether we get them or not, both are in the same way a test. We think that one of them is more a reward and one of them is more a punishment. Not necessarily. While they are, they're also both a test. And your job is to do the best given the test you have. You're not responsible for what's going to be thrown your way. You're responsible for the choices you make once you're in it. Okay, so inshallah, we're gonna, I'm going to come back to this question in a lot more detail. Um, I understand, I think it's because of a, of a lecture in Shah Muharram when we talked about, we linked it to these more modern notions of karma and do we accept it or not. And we talked about how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that those, if you are to live like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to live, He will bless your life. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes this very clear. But this does not take out the tests and challenges. And those who live in a bad way, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says they are not going to live a happy life, but they might think that it's a happy life. That's fine. 
in the vision of Allah, in the outlook of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is not a happy life. And so sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keeps testing them and they keep failing in their tests. And sometimes it's because you do a lot of good. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to reward you in this life so that you have no reward in the next. Okay, but that, that's another topic. Inshallah, we'll talk about it in the future. Inshallah, this was enough of an answer for now. There's other questions, concerns, comments. We're good? Okay, wa sallallahu ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa